Hello and welcome to Fourth Estate, a show about journalism. We're coming to you from Tourist in Sydney on the Gadigal lands of the Euro Nation, right across Australia on the Community Radio Network, and direct to your device across the globe via podcast. I'm Anthony Dockrell. Have you ever witnessed someone being attacked on social media? And did you ever think how you would feel if you were the target of such an attack? Imagine if the attack wasn't public, but instead it invaded your direct messages your email, or even happened in person. This is the reality faced by many journalists today, specifically those who identify as Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander, those who are linguistic or culturally diverse, those who might identify as LGBTQIA+, or those who are disabled. A recent report titled Online Safety of Diverse Journalists, published by Media Diversity Australia, sheds light on this serious problem of abuse within our newsrooms. Today, we are privileged to have two of the academics who worked on this report. Professor Bronwyn Carlson is Head of Indigenous Studies at Macquarie University, and Dr. Faith Valencia Forrester is a lecturer at Griffith University. Professor Bronwyn Carlson and Dr. Faith Valencia Forrester, welcome to Fourth Estate. Hello. Thank you. Look, this report from Media Diversity Australia has really uncovered a hidden pandemic in our newsrooms and and one that's happening in plain sight, namely journalists and media professionals who are culturally and linguistically diverse, those who identify as Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander, those with a disability or those who identify as LGBTQIA+, are being abused just for doing their jobs. Roman, can you tell us about the scale of abuse that the report uncovered? Look, I think across all of the four cohorts, it's interesting that there are really high levels of online abuse taking place, you know, and it's some of those people experience multiple forms. So there might be uh, a woman who's also Aboriginal. So there's kind of this double layering or they might also have a disability or be a queer person. And so there's this multiple layering of the ways in which they can be abused online. So it's it's not a simple thing to just pinpoint and trace. There's some depths and nuances to it. And if I can just jump in, Anthony, yeah. it, you know, over 85% of people we surveyed said that they had experienced online abuse, but it wasn't just the impact of people who were directly abused. It was the uh, impact it had on people who saw their peers in college of similar similar backgrounds being abused that also instilled some of the fear, uh, stress and anxiety as well because, you know, if oh, if she got abused so badly in that way, then how do I protect myself from being abused in that way? So there's a silencing effect as well. <laughs> and then, of course, people's friends and family circles who have to be a witness to the impact on um, individuals and also fear for them. Hmm. Look, when we talk about online abuse, many of us think of like organised pylons that happen, like Lisa Miller being relentlessly attacked on Twitter. That's an example that comes to mind. But this abuse is just one of the visible manifestations of online abuse. Faith, can you talk us through the different ways people are experiencing abuse? Well, in the report, you know, a lot of it was through social media channels, uh, so Facebook, Twitter, but that also you know, and Bronwyn can talk to this because some of the people she interviewed 
attested that, you know, if you block them on Twitter, it then transferred to contacting journalists and media workers by email or showing up and, you know, confronting them in the street. So, you know, the channels were not just limited to social media. It did spill over into other areas and not just in their professional social media. Uh, journalists and media workers were also targeted and attacked through their personal social media channels as well. Bronwyn, what, what, what forms of abuse did people so, report to you? Yeah, so people spoke about, you know, we had journalists talk about, you know, sometimes when they turn off the comments, for example, so that journalists don't have to engage with sort of, you know, abuse via the comment section, but then the people would then look them up in their workplace and then email them, telephone them. There are occasions where people, you know, like Faith said, meet in the street where they cop abuse. People feared for, you know, going home or to their office space, the in-between times. So, yeah, it's not just online. It definitely spills over into everyday life as well. And these days that, you know, division between off and online is a little bit blurry anyway because, you know, people are constantly online and constantly interacting in their everyday. And so people also took that fear home and they're still engaged online in the home as well. So there's no kind of office space, home space, places that you can escape. But yeah, people would track down telephone calls, emails. One one occasion they were sent on one person I spoke to sent like really lengthy letters uh, of abuse and, you know, some violent content. Now, the frequency of this abuse, the report outlined, was troubling as well. I mean, 42% were experiencing abuse once a month. 11% said it was happening daily, daily. What are the impacts on someone's mental health from these attacks, Bronwyn? Well, this is the thing. I've done a little bit of research in the space myself around, you know, being engulfed in this kind of uh, space of anxiety and, you know, fear and what that can do to your mental health. And we do know that, you know, spending a, a lot of time online can have a really negative impact on your health and well-being to start with, let alone being targeted. And so we actually don't know what that what that would equate to in somebody's actual life. We know people speak about being, oh, I felt anxious, I felt nervous, I felt ill, I felt depressed, I, all of these kind of emotions, but we don't know the actual toll. There's not really been a lot of research that focuses on specific cohorts like we did and then what would be the sort of long-term result of being in a space where you were targeted like that. But we do know that a, a number of the people we spoke to were leaving the industry because of it. So that's a kind of way of a strategy or a tactic to move oneself out of that harmful space. It does seem uh, slightly bizarre that, you know, if social media has been around for 15 years, the online environment's been around for far longer than that. And we don't have a proper understanding of the impact it's having on individuals. But, you know, this report is obviously a step in that direction. One of the, the problems that the report raised was that the behaviour that many of us would like to think is fringe or extreme has largely been normalised in some sections of social media. This normalisation, you know, leaves diverse journalists open to attack, but also there's no way of avoiding attacks in the future. Is part of the problem that most people working in management and senior positions don't understand the impacts on mental health and well-being these attacks are having? You know, that this behavior is being normalized because we're not seeing it as a problem. Yeah, look, you know, one of the things we point out in the report is that, you know, this needs to be considered an OHS issue. It's a, a workplace issue that people are having to deal with. It's, and if we don't actually do that, 
then I think we're going to have a whole lot more issues in the future when we see the true impact of a length, you know, people having a lengthy career exposed to these kinds of, you know, dangers and abuse. So it is an occupational health and safety issue, and it needs to be treated as one, and and it needs to be taken seriously. And I don't think it really is in many workplaces. I don't know if you have a different opinion on that, Faith, but I, I think that in workplaces, people don't really know what to do about it or how to combat this. And so it's largely left to the individual to sort of, you know, get on with it, just ignore it, don't worry about it. But these, you know, real things happen from these kind of circumstances, like physical alterations on top of the mental of exhaustion and emotional exhaustion from, you know, having to deal with this kind of stuff. So it's not it's not something that you can just say, well, I'm just going to ignore all of that racial abuse I'm getting today. I've decided I'm not going to take it, take it on. It's not that's not how it kind of works. So it's it's silly for us not to ha- be thinking about this more strategically and working out how we can protect people in the workplace from online harms. Just to follow on from what Bronwyn was saying, there is that expectation to just move on. So when journalists do report, oh, this has happened or I've experienced this, there is that. Well, that's expected. Move on. Get on with your job. But and the problem, I think, with normalising that and having that expectation is that it, again, stops people from feeling they can speak up about the impact it's having on them. And the expectation that it is part of the job sets people up to, that there's only a certain amount of people that really experience that kind of behaviour. And by normalising it, just continually perpetrates that that behaviour for People and then, especially if they're women as well, I don't. I, I'm sure if it was white male journalists receiving the amount of abuse that diverse journalists and media workers and women are receiving, I think there'd be a, a vastly different response to how this is handled. Yeah, I agree. One of the aspects of the report that that struck me too is that, and it stopped me in my tracks when I when I read this was many of the people who are being attacked see this is just part of the job. So racism, sexism, homophobia, transphobia, ableism is just part of working in the media. That's pretty bleak. It's not just part of the job for everybody. It's yeah. just part of the job for minority and diverse journalists. So one of the interviewees I spoke to, she was she spoke about how she, what she was doing to mitigate the experience of talent or on-air interviews that she was organizing for her program so she was like advising them you might be getting these comments on your social media so block your profile so she was doing all the things for her talent that she did not have her employer doing for her so this was a diverse journalist from a cult background with a disability and when I was asking her what impacts you the most? She said, oh, gosh, I can't even get to the fact that I have a disability because I'm dealing with the fact that I'm female and cowed. But, you know, she thought it was okay that she dealt with that. But and I guess the point I'm trying to make is she didn't think it was okay for her talent or the people she was interviewing on her program to deal with it. And I think that's the problem in the newsrooms. Yeah, and look, this feeds into uh, another statistic from the report uh, that I found a little bit shocking was that, uh, but something in the order of twenty five percent when when they feel that they you know they need support from the abuse that they've been experiencing, only twenty five percent are turning to their employer for support, 
And I know there will be multiple reasons for this number, but what were some of the reasons why 75% were not including their employer uh, in their, their need for support? Yeah, so some of the people that I spoke to, you know, reported that they were perhaps the only Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander person in the workplace, and they felt that felt quite isolated to start with, and they also didn't want to be seen as the person who was, you know, being the problem, because we all know that, you know, if you report the problem, you're often seen as the problem, and so to be the only Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander person, it's really difficult to get careers in this space in any case, because, you know, often, you know, people from diverse groups uh, considered that they don't have the ability to be objective on all stories or that they can only speak to stories about Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, for example, or queer people or or you know, cold people or whatever, so that they don't have the ability to just be objective like supposedly all non-Indigenous people um, have that ability. And so if they raise their hand and say, listen, I'm being targeted here, look what's happened to online, there, there's some fear there that they'll be seen as just the problem in the workplace. And, you know, this could impact their em- employment, and it has done for some, where, you know, a lot are in precarious employment positions to start with and don't have full-time ongoing work as such, so they don't want to be targeted. And the other thing is is trying to explain, you know, what, it, what does it feel like to be targeted in such a way to somebody who has you know, might have exhibited no empathy or might have just no clue and have no lived experience of what it feels like to be one of these kind of categories or multiple parts of this categories and what it's like to report to somebody who looks at you with no recognition in that, you know, one person who was an Aboriginal journalist reported that they had a really good outcome from a case where they were seriously impacted by violence they received. And they said they felt that that was their manager was an Aboriginal person and they understood it. I guess, you know, if I can share one uh, interview, they received an email that was quite abusive. So they took it to their uh, senior manager and showed it to them. And the response apparently was, thanks for showing me. And then they turned around and went back to their work. So there was no real acknowledgement and no action taken and no support offered to that journalist as well. And I think that talks to the need for training in this area for senior management and executors and editors and people heading up newsroom, that there's a need to have some definite training in this area of how these people can be supported in their everyday and how to deal with this when it comes up. Because I'd like to assume that it's not that that senior manager didn't care. They probably didn't have the skills or the understanding or the empathy in how to deal with it. So I think there's an urgent need for newsrooms to undergo some training in this area. One of the comments uh, in the report that uh, that struck me as something we should talk about is somebody who participated in the report said, I'm cautious revealing my struggles because I don't want people to think I can't handle my job. You know, journalists expect it to be tough as nails. You know, it's part of the myth of being a journalist. But, you know, clearly probably, you know, time to call this stereotype out for what it is. I mean, how do you make over an entire profession built on a myth? Well, I don't think it's a myth, Anthony. I think you think about young cadets sent out doing death door knocks. There is that expectation to be hard as nails as a journalist and you've got to compartmentalise yourself from the job. But I think that's a very different stress and trauma to actually being attacked for who you are doing your job. Mm. So, So I don't think it's a myth. I think it's a problem and it's one that needs addressing. 
So we we need to have a proper discussion about about the role of journalism, but also what a diverse newsroom looks like and how how a diverse newsroom uh, acts. Uh, Bronwyn, is that is that a fair description, or do you, do you think I'm still missing uh, some subtleties here? Look, I think those things are really great, and I would really like to see that actually happen. But I think it's uh, there's some bigger problems here too, right? There's bigger problems with our society <laughs> that filters into places like journalism and journalists and the, the the way they have to experience what's becoming more and more a problem in society and, and more and more acceptable in some ways or just brushed off. So because journalists are so public-facing and they're expected to have public profiles and to engage with the public and engage on online, um, particularly on social media, so they're expected to be out there so we have to do something to make sure that people are safe if that is part of their job. I was just going to build on the diverse newsroom, Anthony. We yep. need diverse coverage from those newsrooms as well. And that's just Absolutely. a societal mm. comment. Look, staying on this point somewhat, journalists have been strongly encouraged for many years now to build up their profile online, to be active on multiple platforms, have lots of followers. It's how many are judged inside the industry, but it's also how many judge themselves as a journalist. But, you know, it's opening up diverse journalists to being uh, open to attack, as this report has outlined, is the solution to get away from these platforms. Well, th- that that would be the case if journalists from diverse backgrounds weren't previously under fire before social media, because racism, discrimination, misogyny, homophobia all existed prior to, you know, social media, that, of course, you know, heightens and makes accessible new people. But people before that still didn't have you know, an easy time in, in the uh, in that position as a journalist. And, in fact, you know, journalism over the years hasn't changed a whole lot. It still really lacks diversity as it did then, as it does now. But, we, you know, we can't turn back the clock, like social media or online platforms, the digital world is not going anywhere and not going anywhere soon. It might change in the way in which it rolls out, like social, some social media platforms come and go, but essentially we're now part of a global kind of conversation and we have to find ways to protect people, particularly diverse journalists in this space. Otherwise, we're going to really go back to times when we didn't see anyone else except non-Indigenous faces, non-Indigenous voices, all white men constantly. Yeah, and I think it's that societal, you know, that can, sorry, I'm using inverted commas, capitalist society that forces journalists to have the social media profiles, make sure they get the clicks on their stories, make yes. sure they have the engagement on their stories. It's all tracked and mapped because it turns into advertising and revenue dollars for the news organisations or the media companies. The difference was is that in the old model, it was difficult to get to the journalists. The journalists had to chase the stories. Now they're encouraged to have people contact them through their social media. And with the slowly increasing diversity, then that means that that's more opportunities for diverse journalists and media workers to be attacked and abused and have to experience this kind of behaviour online. And look, many journalists will say that, you know, I need to be on Twitter to do my job. And I'm not actually convinced that's true anymore. But let's say it is true and journalists need to be on this platform. We all know what's happened to Twitter in recent months. It has become a lot more toxic place. It's going to remain a toxic place. It'll probably get worse. So it's pretty clear management needs to catch up and provide more support. 
do either you see signs that management is listening in these large media media organisations and in smaller media organisations that their journalists need support if they're going to be using these tools and these platforms when they are going to be open to abuse? I think it depends on if they actually read this report, Anthony. And Mm. if I think about when we launched the report, there wasn't very many senior media execs at the launch. I haven't heard of any real main, you know, any mainstream uh, coverage of this report. There was one article that I read about the report that totally sensationalized the the quotes from the report. So, you know, a I think there's a lack of interest from executives and editors, senior editors in the topic, which concerns me because that talks to the very point of the report as well. Are they changing? Unfortunately, I don't think so. I think it's still very white, male-dominated newsroom. Like one of the people we interviewed, he said, you know, there's there's a ceiling that these young, diverse journalists can't break through because, you know, they leave the industry because it's easier to get work elsewhere. So you're not getting any executives with diverse backgrounds who are making the way for diverse journalists to progress up and affect any change in the newsrooms. And I know that we're seeing more diverse faces on our televisions and on our radios, but is, are they doing that for genuine diversity or are they trying to make their organisations appear to be more diverse? I'm, I'm not sure. Well, look, if managers and senior journalists were listening to this program, what what are some of the measures they could take right now to support their diverse colleagues? I mean, firstly, they could look around and see if they have any, because I'd say quite a lot of places don't really have much diversity. So there might be, you know, one or two at best in some of some of these places, out because a lot of people spoke about the isolation. So I'm, I'm guessing there's not like huge numbers in any individual workplace. So they could take a look at that to start with and think about their own hiring practices and how they promote and encourage, you know, diverse journalists to enter into the into their spaces to start with. Then they could take a look up above them and see who's there and think about well how we represent how as as management representative of the population. And I think, you know, maybe there might be some reality checks happening there. Oh, I'd like to think that would be the case. And even to take a look at the stories that are told, what gets the most, you know, coverage and think about how diverse is their storytelling to start with. Yeah, include some diverse commentary. Like, yeah. uh, let's have a look. Have we given some diverse perspectives? Do we have someone with a lived experience of disability? Do we have a cult person? Do we have an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander person? Do we have somebody who identifies as LGBTQIA+. Are we making sure we're including that in the stories that we tell? And I think if I jump on what Bronwyn was saying when they're looking around, okay, what training does our media organisation need to make sure we're supporting our staff appropriately? And that means all staff because I know a lot of them have diversity and inclusion and equity training programs that their, their staff are expected to do. But it's that next step beyond doing that training. How do we actually enact and enforce that support yeah. for our staff? Mm. And, and how do your workplace policies reflect equity and diversity through, throughout all policies? 
And that's usually because it usually stops at an equity and diversity committee or, you know, and I know in terms of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, it'll be like cultural awareness training as if that, you know, protects people in their workplace. It just makes a lot of non-Indigenous people feel good for the day. So, you know, we really need anti-racism training. We need people to understand the lived realities of people outside of their own kind of realm. Last year on Fourth Estate, we discussed a, another report from Media Diversity Australia uh, entitled Who Gets to Tell Australian Stories 2.0. Now, that report painted a picture of our newsrooms basically stuck when it came to increasing the numbers of diverse journalists and media professionals. This report, I think, dovetails very nicely into it because it shows two reasons why our newsrooms have failed to move forward. You know, diverse people are leaving the industry because it's too hard on their mental health or they're not joining up because they can see how problematic. Do the two of you see the two reports going together that way? Yeah, I think they do sit nicely together. And But the sad thing about that is, like, will we do a third report that says the same thing? Yeah, so... Like, yeah. Who's so, listening? Exactly. So we, but the first report said, okay, we don't have enough diverse journalists telling our stories. And then our report looked at the experience of that very small number of diverse mm-hmm. journalists. And then what happens? Nothing. Mm. That's the problem. At, and does that yeah, say that but, we don't care about our diverse journalists? Because that's kind of what it says to me when I look at the response to this yeah. report. Well, look, following on from that, and you know, and a final question, we've talked about the scale of the problem, and you know, it is deeply rooted in this country's DNA, and it's fed through social media. It's also going through the myth of 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 being a journalist and and how our newsrooms are currently constructed. I mean, some of these problems are fixable, uh, but some of them, and some of them are fixable very quickly. I, I actually think, but some of them are not. Is there a role for government to come into this? Uh, particular situation or should government stay well away from the fourth estate what, what are both your thoughts on this oh Broman, you go first on that one yeah Sorry. i'll throw I'm you a letter say. <laughs> you know I'm, I'm really always reluctant to think the government does anything that's different you know i take a look at the government and think can i see myself there oh no no yeah, so, you know, the government will handpick a few people and think that they're doing equity and diversity wonderfully well as well. So I'm not sure if they're the right people. I think, you know, of course we need, you know, some forms of regulation to keep people safe and there's parts for them to play in that. But I, I do think it's a it's a bigger issue and I guess coming from as an educator, I think that's a good place to start. But like you said, it's some of the stuff is so deeply embedded in our DNA that we have to really you know, begin with some truth-telling for one. And when I think about this report, it's telling the truth about a particular space. And when you do that and nobody listens, then you sort of know that you have a real issue. And, you know, like Faith was saying before, we look around and see who's picked up this report, who's taking it seriously, and, you know, it's not many people. No, it feels like we're talking into a vacuum. And I think that... You know, I don't think the government should interfere in how news is told. I think journalists and and news as the fourth estate have a very important role to play. But we're not talking about telling the news or covering stories or setting agendas or talking to power. We're talking about organisations protecting their staff and ensuring that their staff are not treated or subjected to the online abuse and harassment that this small group of journalists, like we want to increase diversity in, in storytelling. And, and if we don't address the fact that 
those diverse journalists are having a hard time, much harder than their white counterparts. And our white counterparts in the newsroom don't really understand the experience of the diverse journalists. Then that's a HR issue. And that's where organisations need to address it. Uh, Professor Roman Carlson and Dr. Faith Valencia Forrester, thank you for being on Four for State. Thanks for having us. And thanks for being interested in the report. On that note, I'd like to thank Professor Bronwyn Carlson and Dr. Faith Valencia Forrester for being on Four for State. And thanks for listening to the program. This edition was recorded at the studios of TourCR and heard across the country on the Community Radio Network. Four for State is produced with the assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Thanks to the Foundation for their continuing support. Make sure you subscribe to Fourth Estate on your favourite podcast app so you can hear us talk about media, politics and a lot in between. We'll be back with more next week, but in the meantime, you can stay in touch with us on Twitter. Our handle is Fourth Estate AU. My name's Anthony Dockrell. Thanks for listening. <laughs>